0: Squatters and unwaged airwaves.
1: Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues.
0: Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at
2: you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR.
1: Hi there, welcome to The Sewer Show. You're listening to 3CR, 855am on your dial or you can go to 3cr.org.au if you want to stream live or listen to any of our podcasts. My name is Suze and I'm here with Rick and Anissa. We're from Doing It Ourselves, a local activist group that focuses on raising awareness about the need for broad systemic change. We host the sewer show on the third Friday of every month along with all the other sewer team. We want to discuss the need for systemic change from our current structures of oppression and we aim to encourage resistance and raise awareness of alternatives against those oppressive structures because they do exist. So that's a little bit about us but before we jump into the show we just wanted to acknowledge the land that we're on today.
3: We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting today from land that was never ceded and honour of the traditional custodians, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, whose oppression continues to this day. We actively work to decolonise our spaces, communities and selves, and recognise this as an ongoing effort in solidarity. We pay our respects to Indigenous Elders past, present and becoming.
1: Thanks, Rick. So today we want to talk about Rojava, which is also known as the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. That's an autonomous region in the Middle East working to create a truly democratic society. Rojava, as it's still commonly known, is an incredibly inspiring alternative that role models potential ways of achieving revolution and cultural change towards more equitable, sustainable and in fact joyful society – we want to give a little explanation of Rojava and the history and ideologies behind it. And then we're going to be playing some recordings that a member of uh, DIO sent us from the US, where they're actually studying Rojava as part of a postgraduate degree in anthropology and social change. The recordings are taken from some talks by a person named Harvan Garnasa, who is a lifelong activist with the International Kurdish Freedom Movement. She's an engineer, journalist and a women's rights activist and we're very lucky to have access to Harvin's words and send our gratitude across the oceans for the collaborative efforts of systemic change activists everywhere. It feels really exciting that we're working collectively to share stories of revolution to help inspire people and of course grow support for the fellow freedom fighters who are stuck in an embargoed zone surrounded by radical fundamentalists and nation nation forces actively working to dismantle their efforts. We're going to have a listen to Harbin, and then we'll discuss the relevance of the Rojava efforts to activism and culture change here in Australia. And of course, we've always got a few radical songs peppered throughout.
0: So first, we're just going to talk a little bit about Rojava, or as since 2016, it's been known as the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. Um, So the region gained its autonomy first in 2012, which was part of the Syrian Civil War. Um, so you might have heard about all that um, with the Arab Spring there's a lot going on Um, and so this gave the historically marginalised Kurds their first real chance to assert their autonomy and uh, embark on a radical experiment in direct democracy so Rojava refers to the Kurdish part of Syria which in fact means west in Kurdish Um, and the rest of the Kurdish homelands are in Turkey Iraq and Iran so if you look up on a map, you'll see that all of those countries intersect and though that mountainous region is Kurdistan. But of course, um, you know, in, our, in, in the history of nation-states when they've drawn lines on the map, they haven't really thought about the people who are living there. Um, and so the Kurdish people have been long oppressed um, in all of these different nation-states and even beforehand. Mm. Um, for example, people might remember... During the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq, there was a huge genocide of the Kurdish people. And in many of the states, um, yeah, the Kurdish people have been forbidden to speak their language, to teach their culture, even in. Just religion. Yeah. And even in Turkey, it was illegal to say the words Kurdish, (laughs) um, which was pretty insane. Um, but then when we're talking about the northern part of Syria, so what a lot of people call Rojava but is now the Democratic Federation for Northern <laughs> Syria, a bit of a mouthful. Which is why we might say
1: Rojava every now and then, just for <laughs>
0: brevity. <laughs> um, so it's linked to the PKK, which is the Kurdish Workers' Party in Turkey. Um, the Kurdish Workers' Party has been fighting for Kurdish independence since it formed in 1984. Um and some people might have heard of the PKK's leader um or one of the leaders um Abdullah Öcalan um so yeah when the PKK started it was a Marxist-Leninist organization and it was fighting for an independent Kurdish state um but since then and especially since Öcalan got imprisoned in 1999 Um, and is still in prison Mm. Um, and has written a lot of amazing things in prison, so definitely look up his work.
1: And still a cultural leader from within prison, which is pretty phenomenal.
0: Um, But since he's been in prison, he's been writing a lot more, like moving away from this idea of the Kurdish independent state and Marxist-Leninist ideas in that and been reading people and getting influence from people like Murray Bookchin. Um, And so, yeah, they've been working on... Um, this idea of democratic confederalism, um, which is another mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so um, in Rojava, the democratic confederalism was established by the Democratic Union Party. Well, there's a lot of words, so I really (laughs) would just encourage people to look up the history um, because I'm sure... What I'm saying now is it's a bit of a whirlwind. It's an incredible history. Um, but at the moment in the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, the power is decentralized as much as they can. It's rising up from the village assemblies and communes to the legislative councils and commissions that run the economy, defense and justice. Um, at all levels of this governance, they work really, really hard to make sure ethnic and gender balance is is there? Um, so they make sure to have one man and one woman in all these positions of governance, which is really, really amazing. Mm. Um, but enough of me trying to condense the amazing history of this part of the world. Um, we're gonna go to a recording of Haven Gusena and yeah, this is what our friend sent to us from across the seas, and it's amazing kind of talk of the history of critique and self-critique as part of the Kurdish independence
4: movement. So enjoy. Look at the uh, Kurdish freedom movement's history very shortly through critique and self-critique. I think this is very important because we really need to understand a little bit the dialectic of how PKK actually continuously evolved and renewed itself. Because some people would like to think that all this change occurred because Ocalan was abducted, so he had to find a new idea, and this is what he did. No, this is not how it happened. Um, over the 45 years, as you know, we talked about the change in the world um, and its influence on this movement, And, of course, their own struggle um, bringing out new knowledge and new parts of the truth, you know. We were talking about it with Andre today that, you know, because we are made to think of our world history in a very linear model, that we are either looking at you know, the struggle of just the working class under capitalism, and we don't see the struggle of, let's say, colonized people or tribes and clans not to, you know, so that they won't be sucked into the classical civilization as important as the struggle of the working class or that of the woman, you know, and its resistance to be assimilated by this classical civilization Um, and we can't and, and, and the fact that all these different struggles have actually exposed one part of truth you know and now what Öcalan is actually trying to do in his democratic in his theory of democratic civilization and democratic modernity is to bring all these together, as as the integral truth, as the whole truth, you know. Um, uh, so um, so therefore, you know. At the beginning, they knew that all they had was critique. Actually, at the beginning, you know, as I said, they began with saying Kurdistan is a colony. So what they did at the word, at the beginning was to be able to recover. Kurdish people's truth, you know. I mean, I remember him saying, you know, like uh, 95% we are struggling against the Kurds. It's only 5% against the Kurdish state. This is an immense reality because over so many years and so many different policies being implemented, you know, both ideological physical, economical, you know, uh, policies that Kurds themselves had distanced themselves from their own reality. And it was so, so difficult to bring them back in. I remember him saying, you know, like, Vietnamese people, they knew they they were Vietnamese, you know. But Kurds, you had to first say, hey, look, you know, you have another truth, you have something else here. You know. So um so therefore to be able to do that, first what they did was to through critique. They had to expose the official state ideology of Turkey. You know. And the methods they used. Because they used various methods, you know. Let's say Some places, they made extremely religious. You know, they actually actively uh, did that. And some other places, what they did was they paved the way so that that city would go to university a lot, you know, so that, you know, if I'm, let's say, from Dar'sim and I am from (laughs) Dar'sim, you know, they, they would be mostly educated and they would look down upon the rest, you know. Although they were as much um you know, oppressed and exploited and etcetera, and they would be assimilated, you know. So they, they used all sorts of different methods and techniques. So first of all, you know, um this this was very important to be done. And of course to be able to show what the infrastructures and superstructures of of these methods were. Um, but I think what was even more important, and uh, this is also another way that, that the freedom movement did this, how they can be overcome. You know, Not just to expose these, but also come up with creative means of how they can be uh, overcome. So in fact, the method was this. When you critiqued, you had to also show if not that, what? So, critiquing the the other side of the medallion was to show um, what the new can be, what what it is to be replaced with. So, especially those early years um, was the development of the ideological. And political capacity and ability of the movement through this dialectical dialectic of critiquing. But of course, what what came up with that? As they critique this, you know, they saw that. I, I remember one of the, the 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 you know people who who was present at the at the beginning. He had given an interview, and he was saying. That we would go to the villages and we would say down with imperialism and colonizers and we would go nothing would come down you know (laughs) you know so although yes we critiqued and we talked about it and we did this but we saw that by just talking it wasn't coming down you know and so what had to follow therefore was practice practice of it and its implementation. So if I can just give years according to this now, from the group's birth to 1980s, the, the, the task, the very important and primary task was to develop ideological critique. There is not much self-critique yet, because they are still trying to find themselves, who they are, you know, what they are going to represent, what they reject. And the reason was also very simple because they had to break those boundaries in their heads first. Right? I mean, I don't know, maybe some of you give tuitions or lessons. When one talks about something, one actually overcomes it itself in its its own sense too. So all the other duties at the time were actually uh, secondary. So in fact, therefore, um, what they did was to analyze the situation, critique it, and take the responsibility to do something about it. I think this dialectic to today is able to be the motor power of the Kurdish freedom movement. So there are, of course, many stages that they went through, you know, when they saw that, of course, when, when the critiquing was in 1980 almost over for that era of the freedom movement's developments, what they saw was that when they went out to implement it, not everybody was doing the same thing, you know one had interpreted in one way the other interpreted it another way therefore what they understood was that this time they began to point the and point the critique internally so what they did during this time is to critique the kurdish society from 1980 you know, um eighty one, eighty two onwards, but especially after nineteen eighty five, the point of critiquing turned more inside than outside. Um both in terms of the the Kurdish rebellions of the past and PKK was very much criticized for this because they said, Oh how can you criticise the rebellion of whichever, you know. Uh but uh, and also the Kurdish society and also themselves. So their implementation and and practice. Because what they saw, that two things were done. You know, some, and um, especially the more intellectuals or those, you know, coming from universities and stuff, they kind of had had the idea, I will just tell the truth and the rest will just, happen, you know, whoever's going to do that. So um, um, so that was one. and Or others um, thought that there's no need for education, no need for expanding of knowledge. You know, we've made a decision, we'll just go and do it, and, and that's it. So uh, therefore, you know, there were a lot of, of these discussions to alleviate um, these problems. And they reached the conclusion... You know, in their own practice, that praxis cannot be severed from theory or ideology. So, what they, their main pillar became to be this. Uh, And Ojalan describes it as, you know, think as you do, do as you think. This is to be able to catch those moments of doing things differently, you know because usually we act and react in certain formats you know there is like you know if i come and you know slap you you will just get up and slap me you know maybe it's a very you know vulgar way of defining it but you know if you come and slap me i just slap me i just think about it a little bit and you know do do something else instead of that or you coming and slapping me instead of doing that you think about it so therefore this this approach was implemented both on momentary doings but also on you know practice practices of of times so like one year couple of months or whatever um so, uh, this was also, you know, this, this, this weapon of critique and self-critique, therefore, allowed them to both clarify their position and develop their implementation. And
1: each year, 3CR celebrates International Day of People with Disability.
3: I want
0: choices and rights.
1: Join us on Monday, December 3rd from 7am to 7pm for a day of dedicated programming. Are you going to say that? Hear our voices on the issues that matter to us the right to access, education, to empowerment, yeah. pride, to creativity and expression, to freedom from discrimination and violence. Tune in on December 3rd from
4: 7am to 7pm on 3CR and join the fight for the choices and rights of disabled people. (laughs) I was like, that was good enough, yeah? Excellent, done.
1: Sorry, we had a few little tech glitches there. Welcome back to 3CR 855 on your dial. This is The Sewer Show, and we're talking about the autonomous region of Syria who have a bit of an anarchist model of self-direction, which is why we're really excited. So before that CSA, we listened to a chunk of a talk about the importance in Rojava about critique and self-critique. And that's so exciting because it gives this amazing insight into the lived experience of what it's like to actually create that sort of culture change and the, like, real deconstruction um, and then rebuilding of, like a state and a people and a self, you know? It's so interesting. So I'm here with Anissa and Rick in the studio and we just want to have a little chat about what we listen to. Um,
0: yeah, well, maybe I'll start with one of my f- – one. Of, I thought the most interesting lines in what she said was that they were fighting 95% against the Kurds and 5% against, like, f- you know, against the state. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting, th- this idea that, you know, we are fighting against, like, oppressive – um, institutions like the state and capitalism and corporations but we're also fighting against ourselves and mm. we're fighting against all the people and so we need to have that culture change that mm-hmm. we talk about it doing it ourselves like mm-hmm. you need to change how people think and only then will we get somewhere and in, in, instead of just this idea of oh I need to make that company collapse mm. and then we'll be sweet because yep. we won't be sweet unless <laughs> we actually work out how to you know well critique our society well and understand the problems in our society but then we also critique ourselves and understand how we create those problems Mm. um and that work takes
1: ages like you know we've been doing this sort of work um within doing it ourselves for a while and obviously people work on this for a lifetime you know we sort of I feel excited to do this work in my life day to day because kind of what they said you you know your practice is inseparable from your ideology. So getting better at doing this sort of self-critique work in your day-to-day life, in your relationships, in your communities, helps us then to extrapolate it to the wider community as well. So Mm. why don't we just start now?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, and get better at – I mean, I think what I find frustrating in Australia and what often leads me to idealise places like Rojava – is that it feels like our critique in Australia is, is not very strong. Even mm. before we get to self-critique, our critique as a, a society, like mm. we're, you know, we're barely in the mainstream, you know, environment movement, social justice movement. We're barely talking about capitalism. We're barely talking about patriarchy, you know, and, which is really frustrating. And then we also have this inability to critique ourselves mm. as movements.
1: Do you think it just gets taken verbatim? We know that capitalism's bad, we know patriarchy's bad, so we don't go into the in-depth of it because we feel like a sense of urgency to just tear it down so we don't put the effort in? Oh well I
0: think even even a conversation I was having the other day about the environment movement and how there was one of the largest, you know, groups in the environment movement refused to be part of a campaign because that campaign was explicitly anti-capitalist. And so that just kind of took me back to this place of, well, outside my bubble of friends and like fellow people that fight for social justice, most people out there don't question capitalism Mm. and don't question patriarchy.
1: I think there's like a cognitive dissonance you know I mean we've talked about cognitive dissonance a lot and the sort of steps it takes to create behaviour change Mm. I think there's a bit of a misnomer in you know activists or social justice movement that education is enough that if we just sort of tell people if we can just get them to see you know capitalism's bad or patriarchy's bad but that's not actually where the behaviour change kicks in you know Mm. education doesn't actually work it's not necessarily the imperative it's more sort of working it through with people because then it can break through the cognitive dissonance and showing them how to live their life in an alternative way and then I think the conversations can start happening a bit more but Mm. that's just my perspective I really think that like deconstruction there's an amazing feminist critic um and academic and um, intellectual who talks about um, geriatri Spivak by the, by the way her name is, but she talks about deconstruction as the most intimate act that you can do, and I think that people don 't like to look at capitalism don 't like to rock the boat um, we don 't like to be mm. critical we 're conflict avoidant as a people that 's kind of like uh-huh. a colonialist construct you know walk away don 't create conflict, um, and that means that we 're not actually going more in depth into these these ideas, but mm. to to deconstruct something is not. You know conflict it's intimate, it's beautiful to do that yeah. with your fellow people and your communities.
3: God, it's beautiful. I was thinking about how <clears throat> I was thinking about how there's uh there's like customs where you don't bring up stuff at dinner parties or something like that, and it's a bit more of a traditional idea. you have like a family dinner or something, and you wouldn't bring up anything that anyone could disagree about mm. anything contentious <laughs> and it's just Christmas so weird. Is like that <laughs> It's really hard for me to imagine not talking about stuff that you could, I don't know, have a different opinion about. Like, what does that leave? Mm. So if you've got that going on culturally, it's pretty hard to talk about anything that might Mm. be a bit hard to swallow or um, Mm. create a bit of an awkward space Mm -hmm. because this stuff is kind of awkward to talk about, especially if Mm. people are getting onto this um, early on and, you know, getting their head around this stuff.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that brings up one of the big differences between australia and like yeah the democratic federation of northern syria (laughs) is that we're so much more comfortable and so you can live your entire life going to your family gatherings and yeah you talk about your work and you know there are are obviously conflicts that are going to come up especially yeah that you know in disagreements but it's because most people in Australia are so much more comfortable and there's not, you know, at least not yet, hectic repression for the majority of Australians. That mm. definitely is for some parts of um, the Australian populace. But, yeah, whereas when you're over in a country and, you know, ISIS is coming and yeah. knocking on, on your door and they are such a patriarchal, like, mm. you know, extremist violent group of people... And they're coming at your door with guns.
3: There's no choice. Exactly. Mm. And you
0: kind of, yeah, yeah, you have to do something. Um, And this amazing idea that they've spent so much time as a people deciding, well, this is actually really important and we need to spend time doing it and talking about it.
1: Mind-blowing, honestly. Yeah, brain (laughs) tingles at it. (laughs) And I love the way that it's paired with um, a discussion of alternatives, you know, like the Mm. necessary critique combined with like being productive and helping revision um, Mm. their cultural frameworks. That is really special. I think that's one of the reasons why conflict feels so hard because we get stymied in the actual – that that initial mm-hmm. conversation rather than moving to a more progressive place of like, okay, where to now? Yeah. You know, first you've got to understand what you're going through and that's when you can break through. So like, yeah, that that dialogue that they've got going on there between like that critique but then also breaking down the boundaries and re-sort of visioning their culture and self and identity as a yeah. people, it's, it's amazing work. Like that's revolutionary.
0: Yeah. yeah, and what you were saying before, they do it while thinking about it like what was it do as you think and think as you do yeah. like that really important and that i think is another thing that we struggle with in australia is you know the armchair socialist kind of intellectual um and i just loved one line that she said about how oh you go and you you know yell about the system or yell about the corporation and yell how it should fall down and oh it it didn't fall down <laughs> it's just like yeah Yeah, of course it didn't. (laughs) Um, You need to be, you know, doing. doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah, when she says that... Praxis cannot be separated from ideology. Like praxis is a bit of a jargon, cerebral word, but it's just Mm. like living your change, you know, like actively implementing it day to day. And I think a lot of people, you know, because of what you say about Australia's a lucky country, we're not attached to that resistance work, you know. So that doesn't – it's not an imperative that 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 praxis exists in our day-to-day life unless you're an oppressed person.
0: Totally. And, yeah, and that makes you think of the amazing Indigenous resistance in Australia. Totally. And the parallels are infinite in how, you know, they talk about – that every day is a fight. And it's like, well, yeah, so therefore, you know, there's so much more imperative to create this amazing resistance and like visioning and Mm. celebrate culture as as resistance.
1: Just thought popped into my head then of just like the disparate sort of demographics of Australia. It's such a huge country. It's really hard for us to... You know, work together. Like I'm thinking that that's why it's a bit easier in northern Syria because it's just literally such a small location. They can mm. door knock, and they do door knock. They go around yeah. and you know tell women, telling other women, there's safe spaces for you to come to. We want you. We value your voice, and it encourages mm. that. You know, so we're just so spread out here that it's actually hard to create. Well, we can
3: afford to not have community.
1: Yeah, true. <laughs> oh, is that capitalism helping not create communities? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like
3: it, it'll. It will be it'll be kind of uncomfortable and unsatisfying, but not dire enough to kind of goad you into radically doing something. Mm. So you can just kind of coast along and live well, your as life. in,
0: you can just order Uber. Exactly, you can outsource Uber it. Uber eats yeah. every night after work, yeah. and you, yeah, you you have no need to rely on your neighbors.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. and it's and, and you know I find it awkward to go and ask my neighbors for something because now <laughs> culturally it's kind of different. And as much as you can yearn for a time where. Oh, and go and talk to your neighbor and ask him <laughs> for something. Like it kind of feels awkward doing that because we're sort of out of that and it takes effort to get yeah. almost back to that, which
1: is – That's a classist thing though as well, this idea of like, oh, I don't want to look poor. I don't want to be seen to be not achieving <laughs> or succeeding. Therefore, I'm alienated mm. from that connection, which is so interesting. And I remember some research I came across doing a cooperative work that I did a few years ago that said that people actually aren't inclined to come and ask. We really suck at asking, hence mm-hmm. needing to practice the ask, you know, but people are likely to engage when others start engaging them. So, like, yeah. if you receive a gift, you're more likely to want to engage in community. Um, I'm intrigued to you know, look at Rojava in that respect. Like, how did they jumpstart? Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think it probably just comes back to the necessity. necessity. Mm -hmm. And like, unfortunately, part of the talk that we cut out because we can't, I mean... There's so much. It's so juicy, guys. (laughs) It's an hour and a half long. Um, You can message us at Doing It Ourselves (laughs) on Facebook and we can send it through to you. Um, But the first big chunk was going into the incredible history of the Middle Eastern region um, and how, like the Kurdish people have existed in that history of constant, like, you know, genocide and, you know, different groups oppressing other groups. And so there's just a much stronger history of resistance. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, yeah, you'd imagine hopefully it's talked about more than it's talked about here. I feel like in Australia we just want to pretend like we've always been here, mm. hanging out, being like... British people—it's always been like this. There is no history before white people came here. Um, gloss yeah. over, gloss over. Yeah, exactly.
3: I was—I'd quickly say this: like I, I was at the Shrine of Remembrance, and it's—it's it's made with these columns, and it's all sort of ancient-looking, mm, like as mm. as though it was built five thousand years ago or something. <laughs> it creates this sort of fake myth, uh, mythic yeah. vibe, yeah. you know.
1: There is that fake myth of Australia, isn't there? There really is. They're like, yeah, it's the lucky country, the go-getter, the, yeah, rapscallion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely.
1: Mm. Um, I'm intrigued as to, like, what practices of self-critique we could start that people do do in their day-to-day life Mm. and how, like – um, as an example, to jumpstart us a little bit, perhaps I could talk to the way that doing it ourselves started a couple of years ago, doing sort of self-reflective practice before we had meetings, you know, which we had quite regularly. Um, and we'd talk about hierarchies and mm. we would talk about how we were feeling. But essentially, we were just putting effort into deconstructing and critiquing ourselves and how we functioned and that that was like a real imperative. That's how we started every meeting. And that just created a culture so beautifully um, around that sort of self-critique in like an easy way. Didn't feel confronting, at least not to me, did it to you?
0: No, no, I think just going around a circle and just checking in how people are feeling about the hierarchies in the group. Mm. And as soon as, you know, one person kind of, you know, says something about someone and they take it really well or they say something about themselves being like, you know, I feel like I've been taking up too much space, Mm. then it creates so much trust. Um, I think also as a group, we've spent a lot of time talking about our shared theory of change Um, and that creates a lot of trust and understanding, which, yeah, I don't think happens. I'm not sure how many groups have spent, you know, hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Talking about how they want to change the world and what sort of world they want to see and how to do that and critiquing each other's ideas. Mm. Um, Yeah. To me, that's just such important work that's not really happening. Well, I, yeah, I wish it was happening a lot
1: more. Mm, totally. We'd like to hear about it more. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but maybe we should go into a
1: song. Mm, yes. Um, we, we have some really great songs, actually, that um, we came across that are essentially written for Rajava, all about Rojava. Um, so we thought we'd play a couple for you. This one's called Stand Up Now, and um, it's by Lee Brickley. Enjoy. Um,
0: okay, so we finally got that song to you. That was Stand Up Now by Lee Brickley, a song written for the Rojavan Revolution, um, or uh, currently known as the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. And what we're going to do right now, um, after our wonderful discussion about talking about critique and self-critique um, on 3CR, it's 855 on your AM dial, We're now going into another recording by Harvin, which I absolutely love and I think it segues really nicely from our conversation before um, when we're talking about the, yeah, we need to be sitting around and having these conversations and working on our theory of change and practicing critiquing, like how we're going to critique the current issues in our society, but also how we're going to critique ourselves as we're doing the work that needs to be done. But that needs a lot of time. And one of the most difficult things in Australia that I find is a lot of people, oh, but I have to go to work. I, I have to go to uni. Um, and so this is talking about the importance of meetings um, and how they look at meetings um, in this Kurdish region of northern Syria.
2: How many hours a week on average are Kurdish radical spending in meetings. <laughs> seriously, I mean that no, seriously. Because right. yeah, I'll tell yeah, you something, yeah. there is no culture of hanging out at political meetings left in the in, in the Bay Area, hardly at all. Mm-hmm. It's in low ebb and has been for for ebbing lower and lower over time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of the the technological world we're living in and the fact that everybody's this huge massive speed up and everybody's too busy and everybody's working all the time and paying ridiculous rents, et cetera. So I'm just kind of really curious about, you know, the practical reality starting in this epic break in 2005, and you talked about it as a, a line or a, a sort of philosophical guide. You know, kind of parameters were arrived at through collective discussion. How in reality? How many hours per week do people spend doing that, and how did that actually work? Because it's hard for me to imagine having enough time to sit around with a bunch of people to come to those kind of conclusions.
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think you know, if if we if we look at one of the other things, what the capitalist system did is to hijack our time, you know. When we look at other forms of state, you know, we see that if if you go just to the Roman Empire, you know, I, I had a look at you know what kind of holiday uh, periods they had. Half of the year are holidays.
0: <laughs>
4: no really. And but what is being given to us in this system is if you don't work, you're a bum, you know you're a bum and and that everybody should work and and therefore, you know our holiday times have been reduced and reduced and reduced, you know and so, like in the past, of course it's it's part of this consumption culture, you know, but it's also not to leave time for you to think or do anything, you know, uh, constructive. Well, they would call it destructive, maybe, you know. Um, Like, you know, in the past, let's say, if a shoemaker makes a shoe, you know, you'll just go to him and say, okay, I want a shoe, and him or her, and, you know, come back in a week, and he can do it or she can do it in a day or two or in a week, but now, you know, people have to work nonstop to make shoes, to make this, to make that, and we have to work nonstop to consume them, you know. So um, so you're right, you know. And so what happens is that meetings become cumbersome, you know. Talking becomes a burden, you know. Like the the real things that people should be doing become the unnecessary things, because we are made to think and feel that it's easier if somebody else decides for us. So much easier. You don't have the responsibility. But we will, you know, critique if, if they are not doing the right thing, you know. So we are being reduced to that. And I'm, I really want to talk about this probably tomorrow and the third day as well, you know. How, and we... Ejalan calls this society side you know society side and we will delve more into that we were in rojava i think about 3 months ago and then i heard a story there and i just it was just so so funny two people are getting married and they ask the woman you know do you, do you like him do you love him and then he turns she turns around and says to him I love you like the, you know, PKK caterers or the apogees love their meetings. <laughs> you know, and and it's exactly what you've been asking. And it's not just the caterers. And of course there is a difference. And maybe, you know, if there's a question or we'll ever get to talk about that, we'll talk about what this catering, caterers are, you know, as well. Um, but yes, not only them, not only the movement, but even the, the people are always in a meeting. And this is so, so extremely important. If you noticed, I gave this critique and self-critique a little bit, you know, very summarized it. Um, but this is how you begin to agree, you know, by talking. And by coming together and by assessing, evaluating and reevaluating what you're doing, it is an immense space of education, you know. Now, Abdullah Hujalan, when he was in Damascus and in Bekaa Valley, you know, when uh, they, they would have a huge schooling and, you know, there, there would be anywhere between, like, two to three hundred people, women, men, cadres, civilians. They would have the discussions all together about the political developments, about the praxis of the revolutionary movement, its cadres. you know. Um, and then it, they wouldn't stop there. They would videotape this and they would send it to the homes of the sympathizers and the whole society would watch this. So it it's, it was an amazingly open process of critique and self-critique which aimed not to discredit an individual but in an individual's or a collective's um, uh, practice to actually develop the whole society so that the whole society would overcome these shortcomings, you know, because at the end, all those individuals are the product of the society, which is the product of the policies of the respective governments, you know, not only but also. So therefore, you know, me- meetings are extremely important and meetings are places where the tr- the transformation of the mindset occur, you know, for the Kurdish freedom movement. Now, it's realized, we realize that it's, it's extremely difficult, especially in the USA, but everywhere else, you know, because the way that we we are um, stopped being able to do this is through three basic things. You know, housing, food, you know, and all these, and reproduction, children and family, you know. So, and all this to survive, everybody needs money. So, what is discussed is outside of Kurdistan as well, you know, how do you severe in terms of this wage slavery so that you can actually, you know, do what, what you should be doing instead of you know um, try to survive it's a very military thing, isn't it? you know, in the military too yeah, I mean, I know in the Turkish military, for example in autumn, you know, the leaves fall, right? but the soldiers are made to collect leaves, you know, and it's a non-stop thing. You know, with the falling leaves, the soldiers are made to go out so they can collect the falling leaves because so that they are, they are not idle and not doing anything, so there's always something to do, you know. Yeah, and, and it's, it's such a extensive implementation of that to the whole society, you know. You should not be idle, so you shouldn't think you know, or, or you should not begin doing. So, um, therefore, we need to continuously open space for that, and we have to find ways of doing that, you know. And maybe we will talk about that, as I said, in the second and third day, how we are envisaging to do that, uh, because it's a very, very important part of it.
1: Ah. Uh. It's such amazing recordings that we have privy to. That was Harvan Ganesa talking about the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria and the way in which they prioritise meetings as a form of self-reflection and learnings to help them create this more direct democracy that they are working towards that um, is, yeah, phenomenal. I was a bit cautious about that recording because I thought, oh, meetings—you know, meetings are dry. We don't want to be told how important meetings are, but oh my god, meetings are so important! I feel so inspired and excited upon uh, listening to that.
0: <laughs> yep, that's exactly why I chose that section, section of the. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not. Hopefully, people listening could hear the question, but the question was from somebody in the Bay Area, which I think reflects um, our, or at least my experience here in. Melbourne is basically saying that people around they, we like we don't have we don't want to go to meetings. Mm. The idea of a meeting is boring. Like for our house, for example, we refuse to call our house meetings. M- meetings mm. we always call them house dinners oh, just yeah. to make sure people stay positive about them. And it's in so many ways it's so frustrating because the meeting
1: is. Yeah, Where it, like it's, it's the just, commonplace. It's yeah. home. It's really interesting. Mm. I think it's a capitalist corruption of the term meeting. You, know, you think of meeting. <laughs> a meeting. Exactly. I'm going to sit in a room and be bored for three hours while there's a PowerPoint presentation spewed <laughs> at me. It's gross. Um, obviously, what Havan's talking about is a much more intimate type of meeting, but at mm. all levels, you know, it can be relationship house meetings yeah. and yeah, obviously cultural community meetings and...
0: Yeah, well, just the idea of talking about what we want, how we're feeling, how we're going to get there mm. um, is so important. But then, of course, she brings up, up this idea of, like, we have – it was housing, food and reproduction, mm. f- a family. Like, these are three basic needs. Um, and, you know, there are people in our s- society, and, you know, there are more needs than that. Um, and at the moment, the only way to survive or – yeah. Sometimes, you know, an easier way to survive, or I mean, it's very nuanced, but you know, we need money. We mm. need money for a lot of things. And so we need to work. And I like how she said, you know, it's consumption is part of it. Totally. This, like, you know, this social need to overconsume and spend money on we don't need on things that we don't need, but also just some people can't survive if you've got some sort of medical condition and you need to pay for private health insurance. They're mm-hmm. not going to – like you just need that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, how do we sever ourselves from, yeah, the wage labour?
1: <laughs> that big old question. Yes. <laughs> but I think, yeah, for me some of the things that popped out from the, that chunk there was this idea of like – don't be idle, don't think, you know. You're not even allowed space and time to think, you know. Just keep producing, keep doing alienated labour that then you come home and you spend money to alleviate your stress from this toxic environment and then you just go back and do it all again tomorrow and maybe watch some reality TV show in the interim to sort of (laughs) escape your own reality. Um, And we all know this, you know, but how are we working out alternative ways of being. For me, for one, I don't work full time, you know, and I get critiqued for it. People are like, Where's your career kicking in, you know? And um I have a lot of space to think. Doesn't mean I'm not incredibly busy, but I'm really grateful for my brain and for the exercising of it that my lifestyle provides. I don't
3: know. Um yeah, I mean I feel really privileged that I could be on youth allowance and that also I didn't I didn't feel an internal pressure to Work more, Mm. like, so I wasn't putting that on myself, you know, and that, yeah, that that's a really hard thing to deal with. If, well, if you just need the money to to get by, then that's you know, yeah, I I, I'm not critiquing people who work. (laughs) Um, I don't think any of us are, but yeah, yeah, to be clear, I wasn't
1: either. I'm just like very grateful for my privilege and my choices in life, and and I have to fight to defend them, I suppose, sometimes because yeah. yeah,
3: it's it's. You, you do I think you do need time and space and like recharging your energy to like think about stuff like any anything especially self-critique and that's hard to do mm. and if you're kept away from that time and space then what else are you going to do than just try to cope which is really understandable just like mm. buy the stuff that's going to make you feel good it makes sense I mm. I do it you know <laughs> totally. um, and that's yeah. a, that's that's a that's a convenience cycle <laughs> to keep everything in motion and, and you know
1: Yeah, it is. It's the convenience of it. There was something else she said, like, it's easier if someone else decides for us. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the trap of representative democracy, isn't it? You know, we've got the election coming up soon. Like, great, we can elect someone who'll make all the decisions for us and then we just critique them um, and don't offer great alternatives. The liberal
3: thing, it's like, get back in control. (laughs) (laughs) So we can feel control as we spin through this space you know <laughs> like, yeah. it i can i oh, know i was reading into it a lot or something i was like oh <laughs> like what is, is it like it's not just like physical control or just like control over crime it's something else i don't know i'm mm. yeah. <laughs> a bit of an unformed thought there. <laughs> no,
0: uh, yeah a good one and a good thing to think about as the elections come in yeah. um yes because oh. representative democracy is obviously not working for us mm. and Yeah, we need to be thinking of ways that we as a community can support each other to do as little wage labour as possible Mm. and, you know, help each other get through that so we have time to critique and Mm.
1: self-critique. Yeah, gosh, we could keep talking about this for hours and (laughs) we actually want to and for that very reason we're going to be doing um, a big series essentially on Northern Syria and the Democratic Confederation of Northern Syria because we feel at doing it ourselves that it's very aligned with our general politics and theory of change. It provides a bit of a role model for that sort of culture change that we advocate for because the reality is it takes time to change society on a whole and that cultural overhaul is perhaps the best option for us to actually achieve true freedom from the sexism, classism and all the other isms and oppression um, in our day-to-day lives. We don't think you can separate one from the other. So rather than fight one structure of oppression, we kind of need to go macro and look at ourselves. Um, Yeah, so the Kurdish Revolutionary Forces in Rojava, obviously, are working to do exactly that, creating time and space to do that critique Mm. and self-work and then building up up again from there. And um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. But don't you worry. As I said, there'll be more. So join us again next month on the third Friday, 5.30 till 6.30. Um, And in the interim, here's a bit about what's happening around town, some interesting events coming up that are, yeah, radical, cool.
0: Yeah, so after listening to this, if you're inspired to go and do some stuff, here's some stuff that you could do. For example, tomorrow there is a community and blockade training. Um, It's called Lock on a Clock. And it's basically, yeah, it's a free training happening in the city Um, From 10 till 4.30 tomorrow You can look it up on the Frontline Action on Coal Facebook page To be able to find the details But it's so you can learn those skills of how to be in a community And also how to do direct action Um, And also on Sunday night there's an event at Friends of the Earth At 6 6 o'clock, 6pm Called Voices of Resistance Where we'll have two international guests A labour rights activist from Hong Kong And an anti-mining activist from South Africa both incredible women working to defend people's rights from
1: the abuse of big business. So um, just two other quickly ones. Look up Festeroo on December the 15th. Message of the page for more details. It's amazing fundraisers for activists. We've also got another fundraiser on the 8th of December by EvoLens, who are an amazing group that do projections all around Melbourne for various activist groups. Look up EvoLens on Facebook for more details. Um, sadly, that's all we have time for today, but check out the EcoShout website or Approaching Critical for more events. Um, and we're going to go out with a song. Yep. So this is that sunrise over Java. Enjoy, everyone. Have a great weekend. Up next is Mafalda with news and views from Latin America. And we hope you have a great week. We'll hear you next time. bye bye You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.